I always tell people like, you want the option of retirement, not the obligation. I always say, you got two retirement plans. You got the one I'm going to give you that tells you the math of how you're going to get there. You got the other one for what are you going to do with all that time to find purpose? Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F word. Hello and welcome back to the Most Hated F Word podcast. I am delighted you are here for another fascinating conversation. I'm your host, Sean Maslick. I am excited to bring you our first in-person recording. In September, I attended the IAFP Symposium here in Edmonton, Alberta, and I was fortunate enough to have a recording with five guests, four of which were returning guests to the podcast. Joining me here today is Preet Banerjee. It's his third appearance on the Most Hated F Word podcast. He's a former neuroscientist turned financial expert, author, keynote speaker, consultant to the wealth management industry, and is well known for his contributions to CBC, The National, and The Morning Show on Global. Preet recently received his doctoral designation, becoming Dr. Preet Banerjee, as he was researching the value of financial advice to households. It's fascinating. He explains much of this research in the episode. You can tune into episode number 28 to hear Preet's first appearance. Also joining us today is Dr. Megan Lertz, who's a prominent expert in financial planning psychology, an accomplished educator serving as a professor of practice at Kansas State, a lecturer at Columbia University specializing in financial psychology. Dr. Lertz also holds positions on various financial technology boards that bridge finance and mental health. With her active research and ongoing contributions to the Kitsis platform, she explores the connection between money, advice, and well-being. You can catch Dr. Lertz on episode number 34 and 35 of the Most Hated F Word podcast. We also have Jason Pieria. He's a financial planner with over 20 years of experience, well-recognized writer, commentator, speaker, podcast and teacher in financial planning, practice management and fintech. Jason has two degrees, nine professional designations and has received over 30 plus industry awards. He has contributed to over 100 articles, podcasts and interviews. You can catch Jason on episode number 65 of the Most Hated F Word podcast. Also, we have Mark McGrath. Mark is a certified financial planner, chartered life underwriter and Mark has become known for his clever, concise, and informative tweets on Twitter. He's created a following on Twitter that looks towards his information and his simple way to make complex information relatable. You can catch Mark on episode number 143. Last but not least, we have Aaron Hector, who brings a unique blend of youth and extensive experience in comprehensive wealth management. He's benefited from over 15 years of mentorship from some of the industry's best. I have been told that Aaron is the tax expert as he can find creative ways to help his clients during their financial planning process. Aaron holds a CFP designation and he serves on several boards as well. 
We had a fascinating conversation. You could feel the energy grow in the room as we deepened our conversation around so many interesting topics. We talked about the rapidly changing landscape of financial planning, where AI and other technologies are playing a pivotal role, evoking a mixture of fear and excitement as it transforms our industry. We discuss a potential future where technology deepens the human journey of financial planning, making it more meaningful and fulfilling, a dynamic balance where technology augments rather than replaces human expertise. Our conversation then touches on the value of household financial planning and how we can shift our focus from waiting until retirement to celebrate our financial achievements to adding more moments of financial joy along the way, embracing the entire journey. We ponder how we can transition from merely being financially fine to financially flourishing. We also consider potentials of using social media and other online platforms to extend the quality of advice to demographics that haven't traditionally received it. You'll hear Preet talk about his doctoral dissertation and how they really identified this lower quadrant, as he calls it, that really needs our advice. And ultimately, our dialogue centers on the importance of transitioning the financial industry to embrace the human experience of money, recognizing that financial well-being is not just about the numbers, but also about the fulfillment and the quality of life that can be achieved during the journey, not just at the end. Before we get to the episode, you could support the show in a couple of ways. You can go to Apple Podcasts, leave a review and subscribe or share this episode with a friend. I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word podcast. Today, we are live in Edmonton, Alberta for my first ever in-person podcast. Right. And we have five wonderful guests, four of which are all returning guests to the podcast. We have Dr. Megan Lertz, all the way from the United States, her Hello. first trip to Canada. Yeah, first time. Mark McGrath, who is a returning guest to the podcast from Squamish, BC. Jason from Toronto, which is much more superior than Edmonton, he tells me. <laughs> I wasn't saying it, you're just assuming, and it is true. We can <laughs> And Preet, all the way from the UK. Hello, Governor. <laughs> and Aaron, thank you for joining and thank you for the room. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I thought it'd be fun to use the theme of the conference, which is the Big Bang, start a financial planning universe as a theme to the podcast today. Each of you have your own expertise, way of thinking in this realm of financial planning. So I thought we would take that lens of looking forward with our own unique perspectives to start, I think we'll start with you, Piet Oh, I'm honored. Yeah. Well, you recently finished your doctorate degree in the value of financial planning. As you forecast the future and look towards the future of what the role of financial planning is, or sorry, as we do, I think your research is really important to really see if it actually works. Mm. I know this is a topic that has been talked about is how much research has been done in the value of financial planning. 
and you've addressed that in your research. So why don't you let us know first off, what is financial advice and does it work? <laughs> oh, wow. That's a big question to answer. And yes, yeah, so the topic of my research was more about the value of advice, of which financial planning was a component. And it turns out to be a very important component when it comes to financial advice. So looking at some early theoretical underpinnings for what financial advice is, a lot of people put forward this thought that it's about reducing the errors that people make when it comes to financial household decision making. But if you take a look at how financial advice is framed, there doesn't really seem to be a general consensus as to what it actually is. It's been very portfolio-centric in the way that it's portrayed in the media, the way that the industry looks at it. And as a result, a lot of people assume that financial advice is about investment management. And what we're seeing is, especially with the impact and the effects of financial planning, which is more holistic, this seems to be where the real value is in terms of improving people's outcomes. So that shift towards planning centricity and away from portfolio centricity, it's going to be a bit of a mind shift, not only for the industry, but also to trickle down to sort of the retail you know, household level because they've kind of been brainwashed at this point that financial advice is about investments and portfolios and pop culture is always looking at financial advice in the context of Wall Street, the movie, the big shorts, all investment centric. And we have to get away from that. That's really, really tough to do. You use the word holistic and I know your outcomes. The, the second one, I believe, was holistic wealth, was it? Can you just touch on the broader definition of what does that entail? Yeah, so this was a metric that was developed to measure the breadth of advice that people were receiving um, because part of the research looked at trying to tease out the differences in the different channels of advice that exist out there. And we have traditional sources of financial advice, human-based financial advice. And then we have secondary sources, which are becoming more and more prominent, such as social media. And from the sample, you know, 12% of people identified social media as their primary channel of advice. They would have to use another advice channel for execution. But it tells us that consumer preferences are changing. And I think this is a result of, quite frankly, a failure in the market for financial advice for the mass market. And so I think people have seen that they're not getting the deal that you know, maybe they thought they were going to get. And so they're turning to other sources as a substitute for traditional financial advice, which tells us that there's a failure there. But again, going back to the impact of financial planning, while we found in the research that there was no statistical difference in the outcomes of people who went in the mass market level to a human financial advisor, that changes if that channel of advice provides financial planning, in which case there was a robust effect across three different outcome measures. So again, this underscores the importance of financial planning, which is not just about portfolio management. It's fascinating research and like it really validates what we're all doing, financial planning and giving advice, but it also... I think challenges us to think about what this looks like. How is this advice being delivered? What does a financial plan look like? How holistic it is? Megan, it makes me think of something that you've written about, this arrival fallacy. And I bring that up because Preet was saying that we've looked at financial planning really on the heavy investment side and really focus on the investment. And really, it's more than that. But you've done some writing about it's even more than just the investment, even more than the plan in itself. Maybe can you talk to us about the arrival fallacy and how that can play in the way we approach financial planning? Yeah, the arrival fallacy comes from a lot of sports psychology and positive psychology a little bit where 
you're looking at people that are going from, well, I mean, you're looking at people that have won, you know, these incredible like gold medals and things like this. And they, they do it and they obviously feel good when that happens, but then they sort of think that like that, that greatness that they feel is going to last longer than it did. And it, it doesn't last very long at all. You know, our emotions, especially the really big ones are extremely finicky and ephemeral and, you know, they're going to, they're going to go just as fast as they, as they came. And so arrival fallacy is just that, that you think that everything is just going to be so perfect when you finally get this thing done and it's going to feel so good to finally have this thing done. And it does, but only for a moment. And so then the importance of realizing that really it's all the work along the way oftentimes is really what's making us the most happy or kind of has a sustained contentment versus just a really high spike of joy. And I think as that matters to financial planning, we do and we have, you know, put so much emphasis on, okay, well, you know, we'll get you to retirement or we'll, you know, we'll build those 529 plans and, you know, get, get that. And these are like things that are way out there in the future. And when we don't focus on the journey, so either, which can be many things, you know, whether it's sort of rewarding people for, you know, saving their first 100,000 or saving their first 50,000 or, you know, having their first, I don't know, half million or their company goes IPO, whatever. There could be like so many things that you could celebrate along the way ever before ever celebrating retirement. And I think, you know, I've seen this even in my own family. My mother has tried to retire three times. My dad has tried to retire twice and they, they do it and they like it for like a little bit and then they get bored. And it's like, if they maybe would have cultivated more hobbies, you know, before quitting and their hobbies can't be their kids and bothering them to have more grandkids. <laughs> and you know, like, um, if they would have, you know, spent more time fishing or just what, you know, whatever they were going to do, all the things that they've tried, you know, in retirement, but they, they just haven't found like a way, their way to live their life is to just do their work. And I'm not saying that their work isn't fulfilling. They have friends, their work and things like this, but they can't really make it to that transition or the the joy that they thought they were going to have, you know, doing all this stuff in retirement. They don't, they don't do any of that stuff. And so I think it's really important that we spend time like practicing retirement. You know, I, I tell people that if you think you want to spend a couple months in Europe every year, how about you just try to like do like a week in Rome, you know, like just try it, you know, or people are like, oh, I'm going to golf. Okay. Take two weeks off of work. Don't go anywhere. Golf every day. Come back and tell me how you feel. You know, there are things like this. Arrival fallacy is very similar to peak end rule, which is from Kahneman's work. I mean, humans, as brilliant as we are, there's a reason why all the models of behavior, like human behavior, are very similar. <laughs> and it's because we, we do certain things. We just are the way that we are. And it's really important to practice and to be mindful and, and in the moment as much as it is to then be able to be in the moment when it is really great, but to not necessarily have that be the, the only thing that we're waiting for, we're waiting for, we're waiting for. And then it's so fleeting that, you know, spending time, there's so many aspects of positive psychology that come in, the relationships that we cultivate, the flow that we have, you know, as we work, you know, towards this accomplishment there's so many beautiful things that come along the way. And to think of financial planning like that, that, that there are these things in the future. We have to have a place that we're headed, but that doesn't mean that the, the journey along the way is somehow less than and much of what we know and 
you know, putting together a complete story of ourselves, you know, involves the beginning, middle and end, not, not just the one high point, maybe somewhere in the middle or the end. So. Yeah. Thank you. And if anyone wants to jump in at any time, feel free. But I, I've personally, I've felt that the planning phase for me, sometimes I forgot to like be in the planning phase. Mm -hmm. And I know sometimes with clients, it's like, what is that destination that we're trying to get to you? And that's like where we got to focus all our efforts and we, we don't feel the financial joy day to day. So Mm -hmm. I think the work you're doing is really fascinating. When you had wrote holistic wealth, that's what made me think about bringing more than the numbers together. Jason, I recently heard you on a podcast and you were talking about the introduction to AI and the robots. But you mentioned in there how AI has the ability, and some of us are afraid of it or excited, but the ability to digitize some of the repetitive tasks so that we can focus more on like the human experience of money. Maybe you can speak to that. Well, that's just it entirely, right? Like you look at what financial planners are trained to do and what they're trained to do is very technical. What we're doing is we're understanding rules, we're running math, we're basically trying to get people from point A to point B with essentially math and projections. That's the core of the job. Now, that is the what I refer to as the heavy lifting aspects of financial planning. Now, the reality is, is that those are repetitive tasks that involve data. That is something that artificial intelligence and automation is ripe for disruption in. So the reality is, is that we've already seen this start to happen. There are now artificial intelligence-driven financial planning softwares on the market. There are more and more artificial intelligence-driven solutions on the market for everything advisors touch, whether that be scanning their tax returns and summarizing and making recommendations to scanning wills. Like every part of the financial cycle is now being touched by artificial intelligence, reducing the amount of time that we have to look at it. Now, you know, you asked to start this entire thing by off, uh, talking about the forward-looking future of financial planning. And the reality is, is that the tools that exist today make it possible for somebody who is frankly not the best financial planner to elevate themselves to a level that is greater than they could have done without these tools. But the reality is, is that what's going to happen is, is as this accelerates, all of this heavy lifting, all this stuff we spent our time doing before, the things that we thought we were being paid for, they're all going to turn into a button push. Just like the industry started off with access to markets, then that went away with Mayday and the introduction of discount brokers. And you know we moved on to portfolio management. And then we moved on to financial planning. And really, where we're heading is pretty self-evident to a lot of us, right? And it's right at the cross-section. It was right really what I refer to as the single best version of what this industry can be. And that's helping our clients basically live the fullest, best version of their lives by helping them self-actualize at the highest possible level. What does that mean? It means basically diving into more of what Megan talks about, diving into the stuff that all the behavioral people are talking about, the, the behavioral finance, the financial therapy people, and truly understanding what it is that we're sitting across from in terms of the human being, right? What is the gray matter that is sitting between their ears? And what are their biases, their financial traumas, their difficulty understanding themselves in order to help them live the fullest version of their lives, to give themselves deeper meaning, both now along the journey and also when they get to that arrival fallacy, right? And basically helping them to really understand that this is a journey, not the destination. Destination is basically just a point along the route of life. So what's going to happen in the future, quite frankly, is that anyone who's relying upon just technical skills, well, don't get me wrong, there's still going to be a role for very advanced technical skills at the upper level, but the base levels for what you need to know now are going down and down, right? So really I look at the future of the industry as being the human bridge between the technical, I still got to understand what the machine is telling me to do and why, and make sure that that fits 
with the gray matter of the person that's in there and not specifically trying to coach them out of their biases and basically change them as human beings, but respecting that, right? And understanding that, you know what? There's certain things I got to nudge them on that if they don't nudge, they're never going to succeed. They're never going to be feel fulfilled. They're never going to be happy. But other things where, yeah, okay, that's how you feel about it because you grew up with, with real harsh money trauma growing up. I can respect that and I can respect that. And if, as long as the plan says that you can get to where you want to be and live the life you want to live, we don't have to modify you. We can just respect it. Mm -hmm. And really, so it's about becoming, it's about the merger of the human and the robot. I really like what you're saying there. I mean, while if someone, the client didn't agree with what we were saying, we would like talk them out of them and shame them towards thinking the way they're thinking. And you're just well, it's just, being it's just head against them. the wall issue. Yeah. Right? Like how many times have financial planners said, you know, geez, these people don't take my advice. I've literally heard advisors, you know, say they're almost like, they kind of want to give up on planning because the clients, they're not listening. They're not listening. And that's just basically a brute force mentality of saying, hey, you know what? This is the optimal thing from a mathematical standpoint, okay? Well, guess what? That's the optimal thing from a mathematical standpoint, but let's go back to other forms of math. You didn't get the utility curve to match that, that efficiency mm -hmm. curve, right? The utility curve is a human concept. It is a concept based on everything that I derive in terms of what my utility is, and that means everything that all my hangups, right? Part of my hangups, I don't wanna feel hung up about the thing you're telling me to do, <laughs> right? So the reality is, is that you know, when advisors say that, stop trying to basically beat your head against the wall. Look at your approach. What is it you're missing? They're not coming to you. I mean, yes, on some level they're coming to you because you're the person who knows how to do the thing, right? You are that person. But to think that, okay, because I know how to do the thing, you're gonna listen to what I say. Yeah, does that work with children? <laughs> no, it doesn't work with children, right? It doesn't work with adults either. No. So really we have to find the best plan. They say the best plan is the one that people can stick to, just like the best diet is the one that people can stick to. Well, guess what? We can't just say, you're not listening. If they're not listening, there's a reason they're not listening. The more we can understand that, the more we can modify what we're doing to get them to a solution that works for them. This brings me joy hearing you talk so fired up like that. And uh, yeah, I thank you, Jason. Um, and like I said, anyone jump in when you want. But Mark, I was thinking about preach lower quadrant. So for listeners, Research showed that there's a lower quadrant that is the mass market that isn't really targeted by financial planners because they don't have assets to pay people. When I look at your presence on Twitter, I can see you are hitting thousands of people um, using Twitter as one of the social media tools. When you forecast the future of financial advice, how, if anything at all, do you see that Twitter can help this lower quadrant who we don't always target our information towards? It's a very tough question. And I think like Preet's research is gone a long way in helping us kind of understand it, but that, and I don't want to use the term lower end of the market, but those who have less financial resources and assets, they still need advice. And so we've got this catch 22 problem where they can't get access to advice because the costs are prohibitive because advisors need to be able to charge reasonable fees. And these people generally can't afford it and they're kind of stuck somewhere. Right. And so places like Twitter and like Preet said, 12% of people turn to social media as their primary channel of advice. And I can totally understand why, like there's a ton of excellent financial education and resources through TikTok, through Twitter, through LinkedIn, through whatever single social media platform you want to find. It's difficult to tune out the noise or to know what's noise and what's worth listening to. And so I think as advisors, we almost have an obligation to educate publicly so that people can learn about what is, you know, valid advice or at least a thread that's, that's worth tugging on. So for me, that's kind of how I use the platform is I try to just educate and educate and educate. And I do get a lot of messages from people who I meet with and they're not going to be a good fit for me, but they really only need to do one or two things right now 
that will set them on a much better trajectory. And then maybe they actually need more ongoing advice or a different type of advice five, seven, 10 years from now. So they don't really need it right now, but they, maybe they just have one question. So I think the way that the industry is built compensation models and the U S is, I think a lot better or at least a lot further ahead in this. Like we see we way more. Yeah. Yeah, we, we don't, <laughs> we wait for you guys to do it for 20 years yeah. and then we copy it. Yeah. But like things like a subscription based model of advice or something like that, or temporary engagements or fee only planning, like that kind of stuff is only going to get more and more popular. And I think consumers, they deserve that choice of how they're going to interact with the system, how they're going to compensate and what the quality that they're going to get in, in return. We went through massive compensation reform in Canada. I mean, we had, you know, I think, I can't remember the exact term in the U.S., but the long story is mutual funds that would pay you 5% up front, but then the client would be locked into a deferral schedule. Like, we had to pass a law to ban the use of those in Canada, whereas the Americans, they still exist, but they're, you know, they're minor use in, in general. Other countries ban them too. And, you know, whenever there was a discussion about this, we get pushback from advisors basically saying, well, you know, you can't service small clients without it. To which my response was always, what else have you tried? And the answer in Canada was nothing, right? So this is another beat your head against the wall type attitude of the industry. It's this belief that we can't do anything else. And you know there is a market of people who maybe don't have large assets, but they've got decent income. And then there's also a market of people who don't have decent income, right? The reality is, is that we have done a terrible job, at least in this country, Americans better, they're experimenting and they're getting some success with it, of, of finding ways to sell something that people need to them at a price that clears at a profitable level capitalism. That's what it is, right? Like we have done a terrible job of that in, in Canada and other countries because of largely, you know, entrenched interests, lack of transparency, all kinds of stuff. So it is our job as an industry to figure out ways to basically deliver the value we have to lower levels of income strata. Luckily, this is, I think, the beginning trends and we're seeing this in Canada, more so in the US, thankfully. And, you know, we'll see the other, other models around the world emerge. You bring up a, a point that maybe I'd like to pivot this conversation to is solving that. Preet, I want to go to you because in case you fall asleep from being one thirty in the morning in the UK, <laughs> you must have been thinking about that lower quadrant. Mm -hmm. And again, 12% are going to get advice on social media. Maybe we put our brains together. How, if anything at all, could we serve in a model that brings in the work you've been doing about the holistic advice and proper financial planning how do we solve it? Well, the challenge is you have to do it at scale because that market is huge compared mm -hmm. to the high net worth space. And the barrier to entry for being a financial or being licensed to sell investments, I should say, is very, very low. It's not an easy solution. I don't think you'll find a market-based solution in Canada because we are an oligopoly. And so the market power there is just too strong to sort of change that overall strategy. Regulation has to step up. They have to be part of the solution. And I don't know if there's the conviction there to really do that. There's, I would say, you know, the main regulator and overseers, their power and how much politics plays into things has really changed what effectiveness they can have to move the needle there. So I sent some cautious words of choice there. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So in Canada, I don't see an elegant solution anytime soon, to be honest. And what we're seeing as a result of that, you know, regulation not keeping pace with consumer preferences and people turning towards alternative sources of financial advice for better or worse, usually I would say for worse. This signals to me that there's a failure in the market for financial advice for the mass market. Mm -hmm. And people are turning away from it, especially in Canada, where like, you know, the costs are quite high. 
they don't feel like they're getting good value from that. And so they're turning to other places. And we just have not evolved fast enough to deal with this. And I would say that there should be more onus on regulators and government to address this issue Mm -hmm. because society is getting more and more bifurcated, right? And so the chart that we've been referring to, it's very hard to describe charts in audio form, but- We'll include in the show notes. (laughs) Okay, there you go. So uh, basically we're we're looking at, if you can envision a set of axes where you have low financial literacy and high financial literacy on the x-axis and then levels of assets um, on a y-axis, low to high. And so that top right quadrant are people who are highly financially capable, high financial literacy, and they qualitatively have different relationships with their advisors because they can. They have access to better quality advice and because of higher financial literacy, they're more discerning and they can get more and the advisor rises to that as well and they provide different information to people who are highly financially literate. So it's great for them. But in that lower left quadrant, so this is people with lower levels of financial literacy and lower levels of assets, the promise of financial advice, it's it's supposed to be a substitute for financial literacy and it should be more readily available to people who need it in this time of their lives where they're more moldable and you have time on your side and the impact on people's trajectories is is huge at this point. But we're failing there because while financial advice is supposed to be a substitute for financial literacy, what we're seeing is that because we have a you know a commission-based system at the mass market level, people are taking advantage of people with low financial literacy. And so it's a double negative. So the people who need the most amount of help arguably are getting the rawest deal when it comes to financial advice. And it's, it's a travesty. And again, it's been like this for a long time. So I wish I had an answer to how we could address this, but I just don't see the needle moving that quickly anytime soon. Not in Canada anyways. Well, let me, let me voice a little bit of optimism. Like, slight because it's not going to solve the problem fully. <laughs> but I mean, I'm going to voice my support here for FP Canada's initiative to create a financial planning tax credit in Canada, because A, that will make it more accessible, not to the lowest thresholds, unfortunately, but to those maybe on the margin who would otherwise not be able to pay for good financial advice. That's going to at least help a little bit. But the other kind of sleeping you know, uh, promise here is that's going to require the definition of what a financial plan is to qualify and who can deliver it, right? So I don't know how that turns out because policy starts off in optimism and ends up in bartering and pragmatism and, and, you know, negotiations with large giants. So it could go wrong, but, you know, fingers crossed, we might be able to move the needle a tiny bit there. I am skeptical about that for a couple of reasons. You and I both. (laughs) I am skeptical about that because I don't think people in that situation really care that much about a financial planning tax credit. Well, let's talk about that for a second. I have an opinion about what you're talking about. So there's the same, in a sense, in the U.S. The thing is, like we were, you were talking about financial literacy, like people that don't have a lot of money, they know that saving means that they would spend less. They're aware of that, you know, that nobody doesn't know that. And certainly we can measure financial literacy with like the Lusardi scale. I don't know what you use, but I'm going to guess it was that. Yeah, the big three. Uh, yeah. yeah. And so I understand that those things can get better and I would want those things to get better. But here's what we also know about behavior change, that nobody wants to save more or, you know, spend less in order to save more unless they feel good about doing it. So financial literacy starts in the wrong place. 
you know, if people are in to use like the trans theoretical model of change, like if they're in pre-contemplation and they're thinking like, I got to feed my family, you know, this isn't actually important to me or I don't even trust those financial people or all those financial people are just, you know, bad. And if those are the things that they think, it doesn't matter what you do. They're not going to care. They're not going to trust you. It's not going to get better. And so I do work with a company in the U.S. that's, I know you guys have a different system here, so it wouldn't work exactly the same, but one of the, the company that I work with in the, in the U.S., it's called MoneyWell, and they have a program called Money Confident. And the way that it works is that, you know, a lot, well, about 20 to 30% of people sign up for like the 401k, and that's great, but that's a lot of people that didn't. <laughs> And so those people essentially are unengaged. And so instead of going to the financial regulators, we've been going to companies and saying, look, your employees are unengaged. You're only really taking care of the ones that you're able to you know, match. And that's great that you do that. But the less of them, they're unengaged and they don't think that you care about them. So this Money Confident program is a texting program and it automatically enrolls them in it. They can opt out if they want, obviously. But it texts them things like, have you thought about, you know, a financial goal or have you had this financial discussion with your spouse before? And it texts them for a year. It's a year long program. And the people that have been in it, we haven't been doing it very long, but it's been positive. There's been like, you know, people say, you know, I have, you know, like talk to my spouse like about that thing. And I felt like my company cared about me. And that is changing then the way that they behave in terms of trying to save a little more money, you know, for their retirements. And so it's not coming from the financial people and it's not coming from a place of financial literacy. It's just coming from a place of like, let's just help you feel not shitty about your money so that you can hopefully want to make better decisions for yourself and not feel that the world is stacked against you. That's brilliant. I love that. You know, these these little interventions lead to outsized changes compared Huge. to other things that have been tried Huge. before. I know in the UK and I think in other jurisdictions as well, when it comes to blood donations, when you sign up to be a blood donor, they send you text messages for where your blood goes and whose life you saved. Mm -hmm. And it makes such an impact. It's like, oh man, I should go back and donate again. It's purpose to the actual decision, right? Absolutely. And it's these little, you know, transient interventions that are so powerful when they're well designed that I think is probably part of the answer to dealing with the mass market. Because I, I don't know, you guys are practicing financial planners. How many people read a financial plan and how many people are engaged with a financial plan unless they have some significant money milestone coming up that really weighs on them? Well, let's also define how big the financial plan is in the delivery, right? And the, yeah, well, one of the, please. One, yeah, the big trend in the U.S. is towards the one-page financial plan. I think mm-hmm. it's a little bit overdone because I've seen people... <laughs> But seriously, people are like struggling to like, how do I get this down to one page? It's a two pages. Like, help me out. <laughs> like, I'm just sitting there like, stop beating your head against the wall. You've done like a great job. Like, just change the font. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there you no go. No spaces. Like, <laughs> you know, I often say like, look, at the end of the day, this is distillation, right? I start off, you know, we're drinking scotch right now. You start off with a big still and that's all our information, all the stuff that we're working with. And you, you produce a bottle, which is the written financial plan. And then what you deliver better be a shot glass. You know, my delivery is 10 slides. Right. And some of those slides are like a map with two with, with like two pins in it saying I'm going from a to point A to point B. Point A is where you are today. Point B is you live in the fullest version of your life. Right. So at the end of the day, it's like, here's the here's the work I did. In case you want to read it, here's the takeaways. But guess what? We got quarterly meetings. And every time we meet, 
I'm going to be talking about what needs to be implemented, and I'm going to do it for you and with you, right? Now, that is unfortunately something that's not available to the masses because financially it'll never scale, yeah. right? But you know, at the same time, it's also not what the masses need. It's the interventions like you're talking mm-hmm. about. It's how do I get those micro decisions that have an outmoded impact on people? And yeah, I mean, I'm flabbergasted to hear like that, that approach. And I'm glad to hear that it's working. We're pretty smart. <laughs> <laughs> I never, I copy everything I see down there. But can you-, <laughs> you bring up a good point of this behavior change where I think yeah. at times we overlook the issue isn't the information or lack of information. It's like when I first heard about the trans theoretical model change, I was like, oh, 20% are only ready to change. And I think when we start to meet people where they're at with the adequate information that they can absorb, then like your program you talked about can start to, I'm trying to use the different words, but nudge them to making yeah, those yeah. changes. I mean, it's just helping them, yeah, to feel better. And I think even related to financial planning, so like, full circle, you know, that that's one aspect of the market, but financial planning needs this too. You know, people, I think it's very interesting to like change out the idea of goals and tasks. You know, you can ask somebody like, what's your top goal? And they'll say either like retirement or kids, college plans, or they'll say, I don't know, maybe like they haven't bought a house yet. You know, they're usually like buying a house is a big one for people. And so cool. Okay. To do that, you know, we're going to have to save more money. That's usually the answer to all financial planning questions. It's kind of like going to church we'll and you ask less. a little kid, you know, like, what's the answer? Like, Jesus. Okay. <laughs> you know, like when, when it's financial planning, it's like, save more money. So, um, But that's really hard to do. Now you're bringing in like loss aversion and yeah. all kinds of things. It feels crappy, even though we know it's a good thing. So it's like once you have the goals prioritized, great for you. Now that we know what we want to do, what we want to work towards, we're going to translate that into tasks. Okay, which of these tasks are you going to do in the next two months? Which one? Pick. The one the advisor does for you in most 9% of the time. That may be so, but I would, and I think that that's important, that there is a relationship between the advisor and the client. And I do think, I mean, the clients are paying you. There should be some, you know, work that advisors are doing for them and with them. But at the same time, I believe that people should have financial self-efficacy. I actually think they would make to be a decision partner with your client and have them being, you know, like Corinne from the Kitsis platform all, all the time calls it like your battle buddy. You want somebody to go through it with you, not just be told what to do and not just say, I did all this stuff for you, that you want there to be, you're a partnership. And I think that yeah, while there are things that the advisor does and the client does, really being getting clear on like what is the priority of these tasks now that these goals are tasks and then dividing up amongst yourselves, you're doing this one and I'm doing this one, that this can be a really powerful way to get that process started. Even if this is in your mind as the advisor, maybe not the highest priority task, it's still the task to your diet thing. It's still the task that they're going to do. You said something earlier. I'm going to go back to what I think is maybe a foundational problem with this. And we clearly veered off from, from mass market planning here, but let's just talk about this. And that's the goals. What are your goals, right? Like you listed a bunch of them that are conventional. And we ask as financial advisors, like, what are your goals? And frankly, I think people default to what I think they think they should be saying, right? Like, okay, I want to retire, but okay, what does that look like? And the vast majority of them haven't even thought about that, right? And, you know, I think sometimes just changing the framing of it, of like, okay, you don't know what that looks like. That's that's not a bad thing. 
I always tell people like, you want the option of retirement, not the obligation. And we got to figure out, I always say, you got two retirement plans. You got the one I'm going to give you that tells you the math of how you're going to get there. You get the other one for what are you going to do with all that time to find purpose? Yeah. And, and I would say sometimes you have to pull those goals out of the clients as well. So, you know, it's how you frame the conversations and what you're talking about. Like you might not start a brand new relationship asking them, how much money do you have in all your accounts? You say, talk to me about your family. Let me in this first meeting, pen and paper, draw out a family tree, you know, show me who are you married to? Who are your kids? You can go as deep into each one of those as you want to go into. You can go sideways to brothers and sisters. You can go up and down to, you know, parents, grandparents, trying to understand, you know, at the end of the day, you have financial goals, but who are you working for here? And I think in those conversations, you can really pull out goals where it's kind of coming from a non-traditional communication way. But that presumes they're ready for that in the initial conversations. I think, Megan, I believe I saw you present and say something like one of my favorite questions, which I don't ever use at the first meeting anymore, which is like, what was money like growing up, right? Like, don't do that. Don't do that in the first (laughs) meeting, right? Like maybe some people will take well to that, but like turning it into a therapy session, the first time I meet them may not be well received, right? But down the road, that question may unlock the like Pandora's box of like sure. how to how of the issues. I actually ask that in the first meeting every single time. <laughs> My business partner does too, and yeah. I started since Megan said I'm like we need to pull back from that a little bit. Yeah, I, I think I think how you frame it and how you deliver it, and and I think how you prepare clients for the conversation that you're going to have with them in that first meeting makes a big difference. Like I've never had pushback or clients that didn't want to go down those paths because I told them like this is what we're spending our time on in this meeting is these big foundational, important psychological and behavioral type questions. So, and this is just anecdotal, but I've never had somebody that didn't take well to it. And that's interesting because you have a a good social media presence. So you talked about how people kind of know you before Mm -hmm. they start an engagement with you. And I think that is not necessarily the case with, uh, you know, the typical financial advisor. But I think it speaks to how there is a bit of a, a courtship that has to take place before you can get financially naked with someone, right? Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, we uh, see now like the question game, the Esther Perel stuff. Okay, <laughs> yeah. you don't play that with people you don't know. No. We don't have that game here. You know, that, Never we're not going to do that. Yeah, yeah. no. And and the other thing is like. I do think that's probably part of it is they know you a little bit, but some people do know how to hold that space for somebody to say whatever they need to say or do whatever they need to do. My biggest fear is what I call like a vulnerability hangover where everybody has either been that person or been near that person where you're either on an airplane or in a bar. It's two main places happens in in an airplane or on a bar or at a bar. And the person next to you, sometimes it's you, decides to tell you their life story (laughs) and you wake up the next morning and or get off the plane and you think I'm so glad I will never see them again (laughs) and I don't want your financial planning meeting to be like that. Aren't you a psychologist by training? I mean like I'm a little concerned here about this. Megan that happened to me at the star bar. Yeah yeah I mean stories are how we show up in the world and I think that that's a really important thing and being able to hold space for someone to share their story with you is a very powerful very powerful experience and if you're able to do that and that has been good for you great but the fear for me is when it happens too early and the relationship is not built in a way that can really hold space for that interaction which is intimate and special and sacred in many ways that if the relationship is not prepared for that then it becomes more of like a 
bar and airplane conversation. It's so interesting <laughs> you say that because I think there's so many of like my deepest relationships as clients and you know they were forged in a moment of vulnerability, yeah. a loss, a, a critical moment, a difficult time where you know as a good planner you're there not just for when the markets are up but when you know your husband just died or you know they're getting divorced or god forbid a child you know has a severe injury like that stuff has happened and that's you know and you're not only just there for them but you're feeling that and there's there's you're suffering with them and you know those people those relationships just are solidified in those in that fire of that that difficult moment and it's one of those things where i get that i kind of feel like if i ask those questions like on a first in a first meeting, they all, I get, you know, yeah, not everybody because Mark. I think the point of people knowing you from from Twitter might help, and I think you also to gauge it in that first meeting. It might be appropriate with many clients, but others where they're standoffish already, or they're just you know they're sticking to the facts, they're sticking to the numbers. Like asking that is not going to be received well, right? And well, and he said that he tells people like what to expect. I'm a big believer in agendas. Don't invite me to a meeting where you did not tell me what I need to be there for. I either will not go or I will not say anything the whole time <laughs> because I, I find it horrifying. Noted. And so like if, if you go to a meeting and they're like, tell me about your earliest traumatic memory, you're like, yeah. okay, that's what we're Here doing we now. Go. You know, so it's just. This moment right now. <laughs> <laughs> talking to four Canadians in a hotel room, small talking. <laughs> yeah, we I just, wouldn't we, have come. <laughs> yeah. Um, so don't tell you when it's going to trigger you. Got it. Yeah. Jason, you bring up, I think, a really good point about what we're talking about indirectly, I think, but when you talked about your vulnerable moments with your client, mm. it seems to me when I'm hearing you talk about that is you kind of put your agenda to the side of the outcome of the financial plan to actually be there and hold space to receive that information, where I think if we're not listening to here as advisors, we might just miss that, and that vulnerable moment doesn't happen. I think it... In a lot of ways, it comes down to the definition of what you think you're there for as yeah. a financial planner, right? Like, so what again, are you there for, Jason? I really do truly believe that I'm there for anyone who's going to let me help them to live the fullest, best version of their lives. And I want to celebrate that as it happens with them. And in the moments where it is dark, unfortunately for them, I mean, I've, you know, talked to other people like uh, the real, I'll get to that in a second, but the, you know, you're going to be there as a solid piece of support for them in many cases, right? Reassuring them that despite this dark thing, you know, perfect example, you know, person comes down with cognitive impairment, they've got to go into a home, the family's now talking to you like, is my family gonna be okay, right? And being able to say, I'm like, no, we plan for this, right? There's, I will say that being able to provide that reassurance is an incredible privilege mm -hmm. in this job. Right, but I will also say there's a t there's a price to be paid on the other side, right? And there's, there's something called emotional contagion, right? Where oftentimes I am a wreck after having these meetings. Mm -hmm. Like I, you know, it'll be two o'clock in the afternoon. And I'm like, I'm done for the day. I gotta go lie down because I feel like I'm gonna cry, right? So I think if if you define yourself and if that's what really brings me like the greatest pleasure and the greatest joy in what I do as a living for a living is basically helping people live that and help them to achieve and help them just enjoy life. If that is what I gain pleasure from, and it's not about, oh yeah, I'm trying to bring an AUM, I'm trying to basically deliver a plan, then it's an easy conversation. It's easier because I don't feel awkward. When I hear people talk about, oh, it got awkward and I felt like I need to hide under the table, it's like, what are you here for? Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. To me, it's like, oh, you're just here to basically draw the line from point A to point B, right? That's fine. And if that's what you're doing, that's fine. But most of the sales pitch in this day is like, you, know, every, you ask every advisor what differentiates them. One of the first things they say is, I care. 
I care. Okay, great. <laughs> prove it. Cause that's proven in the moment of darkness. Yeah. And I, I would say in those moments too, like you can still have your financial hat on, but be willing to step outside the box of what your traditional role is as well. So as an example, I have a, a client who's unfortunately now a widow. Her husband was a university professor in during his career. He'd been retired for quite some time, but very involved in the university. And he passed and we, we got to talking about his legacy and what she might want to do to, to kind of show respect in the family. And I said, well, do you have any interest in creating a, a, like a, a memorial scholarship fund on his behalf or something like that? So then, you know, I took it to the step of, okay, well, let's call the university, figure out how we actually would do this. Let's set up a meeting. And then, you know, I was able to coach her to say from a financial planner's perspective, okay, how are we actually going to fund this? What's it going to mean for you? Can you afford to do this? And, you know, connect the dots. What's the best way to do it? Security transfers rather than cash, all these things. But it's not just all about this is what your portfolio is. But and, you know what I love about you know, the entire thing is that's exactly what money's for. It's about what it is that gives us fulfillment, whether it be in memoriam of others or in our own lives. Like, and we get too caught up with it being numbers on a screen. I'm going to plug a song that I wrote, which I don't say very often because that's not something that I normally do. Actually, Rudhav basically wrote that. But we have a line that says, money's not the boat of life. It's just the wind in the sails. And I think that exactly. goes to what you're saying there. That's deep, man. I know. It feels I'm good to feel that going forward. Yeah. <laughs> We're coming to an end here. I think it would be neat. We, we've pivoted so many times, which is good. And I'm really hearing this, what I'm fascinated about. So I appreciate it. The, the human experience of money. Mm-hmm. Maybe let's go around the, the, the room here and just, if we can each touch on what is the human experience of money in the context of financial planning? Start with you, Megan. You're the guest. <laughs> Okay. Ending uh, human, on an easy one. Human, yeah, right. human experience. I'm glad I'm not going first. Yeah. <laughs> Copying her answer for sure. Just like high school. Copy your notes. I think for many people, it is difficult. I don't know. I mean, I've lived, okay, so I've lived in a lot of places all around the world. I have yet to live in a place where they say, you know what, money, I really like it. I think it's super fun to talk about all the time. I feel no embarrassment, no shame. You know, it's just like a normal thing that we do a lot. No one says that. So I think that whether you have a lot of money or you have a little bit of money, you're in one quadrant or the other quadrant, that, you know, money is a a difficult thing. It's often rated like one or two on the American Psychological Association's like number one stressors or number one fights and things like this. It's sadly not a happy thing. I've talked on a different podcast just about this is an idea that I stole from Ed Combs that talks about just the idea of financial joy. I don't know that people have that. And now working a lot with Brian Portnoy, like funded contentment, you know, I love the idea of these ideas, but I have yet to see them in real life. You know, I mean, I'm trying to experience it even for myself, you know, and just the way that I've restructured uh, some of my work and things like that, that I'm doing lately, just trying to find that place of contentment, not necessarily, you know, a really high, high or really low, low, but, you know, just like a soft landing with money where I feel safe or I feel content. I can have freedoms, but that doesn't mean like without any limitation, 
it also becomes difficult, no against uh, social media, but like it becomes even more difficult, I think, with social media. I, I don't know. This is a very big question. I feel like we could talk about this for mm. like three hours. Yeah. I think it was, but, wasn't it Charlie Munger who said that the world's not ruled by, by money, it's ruled by envy? And like yeah. the entire social media thing feeds into that. So like you're satisfied as long as you're satisfied that what you have is norm is a norm. When well, you but see that was that really famous Harvard study where they asked those Harvard students, would oh. you rather make like a hundred thousand dollars and all your friends make eighty, or would you rather make like two hundred and fifty and all your friends make five? And all the Harvard students, you know, granted it's a wasn't there a similar study that found that the greatest degree of correlation to happiness with your income was if your as a man, you made more than your wife's sister's husband. Sure, sure. I, I, I mean, keeping up with the Joneses has been a thing for yeah. like forever. You yeah. know, it's just, and now with social media, the Joneses are billionaires. Yeah. <laughs> and you can watch them whenever you want. <laughs> and it's amplified a million times and, over. You know, and people also, you know, only want to, like nobody p take pictures of themselves crying. I don't. <laughs> and so we'll take one of those of Mark when he has like his hot it's, sauce it's, tomorrow. <laughs> Long story. Is. Follow us. There it is. Yeah, we're just, we're living in a world where I'm going to talk about this a little bit tomorrow. Just the, uh, like isolation and loneliness kills people. And we're living in a world where we're becoming more and more disconnected all the time. And I think that in many ways this relates to our money because the happiest places in the world, they actually spend a lot of time with their families, spend a lot of money on their families. What little money they have is given back to their community. And we've really gotten away from that, especially in the US. I can say we're like a deeply individualist society. And I think it's killing us. And so... I don't know. I didn't mean to get dark, but. Yeah, that's such a big question. You're right, Megan. We could just, you could do an entire podcast, like 250 episodes, probably just on this one question. So I'm going to totally deflect. I will say a few things, though. I think I wrote about this one time, but, you know, they say money can't buy happiness, but it's a pretty good hedge against worry. And I think this is what goes to what Megan was saying is that it's that it's that safety. That's what people want. It's the lack of worry about, about finances. And there's very few things that touch basically every person on the planet and health and money are those two things. And so it's, it's unavoidable that you're going to have some experience with money, whether it's a lack of it or, or something else. And if you don't get control over it, it will control you. And you and I talked about this, Sean, on our, on the last episode that I did with you, but if you don't wrangle it and, and figure it out in a way that you don't have to necessarily control every single aspect of it. But if you're not on top of it, you will paint yourself into a corner where it becomes the dominant force in your life, the, either the lack of literacy or the lack of money itself, and you limit your options. And so I think, I don't know what the human experience of money is like in a nutshell, but we're all going to experience it. And so you better spend some time thinking about it. Priest get to run out of options by the time it gets to him. <laughs> so Aaron, Aaron's really doomed. Okay. But I mean, here's the thing. One of the, as a sidetrack, one of the things that always obsesses, that I obsess about is when people, you know, th say things like, oh, I didn't have a choice. Like, to me, like, there's only a few things you really don't have a choice about. Like, you don't have a choice but to breathe. You're done if you don't, right? Everything else is basically a choice. And money is a proxy for the concept of wealth, which is the proxy for the concept of being able to obtain other things that you, quote unquote, need, food, water, and the things you don't need but basically may bring you joy or bring you utility, fine. And the reality is, is that it is a complex concept because it really does come down to almost like our base need for existence and then our base need for moving up Manslow's hierarchy of needs, right? We take care of our essentials and we keep on moving and, and is the thing that in a lot of ways enables our ability to move up that, 
right? So it's difficult to basically say like, what does it mean to anyone? Because it's, it's, it's relative. It's relative to what you consider normal. It's relative to what you see around you. It's relative to envy and all the things we've discussed about it. But it is a complex topic because it is the, almost the metric for which we have limited, we have scarcity, no matter how much you have it, you have some form of scarcity of it, right? You don't have an infinite supply of it. And it is the thing that, that dictates our ability to basically move up what that, that hierarchy and, that, and, and whatever it is we want to do to whatever degree we possibly can, right? So the lack of it is absolutely the thing that can kill us, right? The abundance of it is actually the thing that can kill us, it, spiritually, infinitely, emotionally, whatever else it is. So it is this thing that is, is from a primal, like almost like, you know, evolutionary standpoint that is basically taken as replaced the need to just seek out food and shelter, right? And it's this thing that we have been struggling with for as long as society has existed. And we're not gonna solve that tomorrow, right? That's the reality of it. So I think it's just fair that we accept the fact that this is complex, this is emotional, this means different things to different people, this means survival, this means self-efficacy, this means any number of things. But I think the most important thing is that we basically have gone so far away from the concept of life, of living, of, of, of connection, of all these things that actually do bring us true happiness as actual beings. Because the pursuit of this, without the pursuit of understanding of what actually is gonna make us happy, has base, is killing us in a lot of ways, right? So it's super complex to ask what it means. It's like we have you know, literally been philosophizing about this as long as existence has been around for us. So we're not gonna answer that. But the answer is really to focus on, I think, what is gonna fulfill you? And it's not money. I think you say it so well, and I'll go to you, Preet, is that we're not going to answer it. But I think having the conversations get us to our own version of... I, th I think it gets away from the BS of it, right? Like, I think, you know, being able to strip away, I mean, what Megan said about, about you know, the connections being so important, what Mark, you know, talked about in terms of, like, having to deal with it, right? Like, end of the day, this is, this is not something that there is, there is no answer. There is no answer, because the answer is really different and moving and amorphous to all of us. Well, we've covered a lot of ground here. Um, <laughs> so let me Aaron's try. Aaron's after you, dude. So you're, yeah, well, you're not the worst off. You guys just join me for a light conversation, please. Yeah. <laughs> let me, I guess I'll throw in my two cents on this because this is something that I've been thinking a lot more about lately. And, you know, one of the challenges that people have in general is that 99.99999% of our evolution is really about living surviving until the morning, right? So we're, we have this short-term bias, a present bias, and we, the psychological weight of long-term trade-off choices, what happens in the future is psychologically diminished, right? Because of hyperbolic discounting. And so it's very hard because we feel the pain of foregoing consumption today in the present, it's magnified, and the benefit of that trade-off choice is minimized, right? So we tend to act on a short-term basis. It's a real challenge. And so anything that you can do to make the future more concrete and less abstract tends to pull people towards more, I guess, rational sort of choices. It's a, it's a real challenge. But I heard something that uh, really resonated with me, and I forget who said it, and I wish I did so I could attribute it properly, but they said, you know, Pretend that you've died and someone is reading your eulogy and what are the things that would make you feel most proud to hear being conveyed at that, that eulogy? And that is what your life design should be. And, and I've been thinking about that so much and it's made the future much more concrete in my, in my mind. 
And I feel like that drives a lot of some of these goals that I think a lot of people don't really know how to articulate because it is, it's almost like taking a te- like a risk profile questionnaire. I always found back when I was an advisor that people try to answer those to try and impress the advisor. Like, I understand the stuff that you're talking about. This is what I should do. It's like, no, you should answer what is what you actually feel, not what you think I want you to say. There's research on that. People do do that. Yeah, exactly. Risk. You can quote me. Risk tolerance things are ridiculous. And we, we should we need quit to talk because I need, I need your input. Okay. Like mine's, I, I, well, go over. Sorry. And by the way, I, I, I don't think it was him who said it, but I heard Morgan, Morgan Housel say the exact same thing last Maybe week. Maybe that was it. it? May have been, well, Morgan tends to get things from other people, but yes. <laughs> Whoever said it, you know, kudos to them because that really flipped the script for me and really made the future a lot more concrete. And I've, I've just been thinking about it so much lately. So, you know, maybe that will help some people to sort of frame it that way. Because if you're trying to come up with goals and you're just trying to answer things that you think want to be heard, think about anything you can do to make that future more concrete. I think it's a very powerful mechanism. I took a, a course with Dr. Brad Kantz, and that was one of our assignments. It was a variation of that. It was, you're at end of life, who's with you? And what are they going to say about your life that you said, I did it, I lived a good life. And we had to do an assignment of writing through and I was like, whoa, like, yeah. So yeah, that entire snapping you to the future moment is so powerful. Like who was it? Was it, who was it who did that exercise where like they showed pictures of what you would look like when you were old? It was Hirschfield. Yeah. I should, I heard him speak last week. I should have got that. But point is, is that like that entire eliminating the hyperbolic discounting and like, I guess, reducing the discount rate for lack of, for, for a math geek joke is, is so powerful because, you know, future Jason is, is just some guy who's, you know, I'm going to screw over with my decisions in today, but if I can see him screwed over by my decisions today, I'm going to want to screw him over a little bit less. Yeah. Well, in your brain, your future self is a stranger yeah. or like totally. a B-list celebrity. That's what they say. I, I literally posted a clip today from the, how I met your mother about like, Oh, let, let, let the future, you know, those guys right. worry about it. And, you know, then they're like, damn it, those guys in the past. <laughs> right. Right. I don't have a whole lot of extra to, to say on it, but just observationally, I would say, you know, I do have some clients that I just know I'm going to go to their house or if they're coming into the office, it's going to be an emotional meeting. Mm-hmm. You know, you just, there are those people out there and you just know what to expect. And I think it's because for them, often there's uncertainty. You know, at the end of the day, money is a connection to what your life can become. And if, if perhaps they're uncertain about their financial resources or the status coming into that meeting, they're just, they're coming in with this baggage of have maybe having their head in the sand and not wanting to pay attention to it. Or maybe they're not even that receptive to your questions, uh, like your lead in questions to get ready for that appointment because they don't want to. But then by the end of the meeting, you provide that clarity for them. And it's always a calming effect. You know, it starts kind of heightened. You go through it, you try and answer the questions, create that concrete future. And then you can just kind of see the relaxation happening throughout the meeting. So it's that, that it's connection. It's a great part to, of the job, isn't it? Great connection from life to money. And, you know, we're empowered to try and help facilitate that process, which is great. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for joining me. I appreciate the conversations, appreciate all that you guys are doing, and thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed that live recording as much as I did. 
It was so exciting to have that many brilliant minds in the same place. If you've been enjoying the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review and subscribe to the show. And finally, if you enjoyed this conversation, which perhaps you did because you're still listening, please share it with a friend, family, or colleague. Until next time, have yourself a great day. I'm on a mountain without a top. My wealth is measured and now I spend my time. But now I read freedom story with every breath inhaled. Money is not the boat of life. It's just the wind in the sea.